everyone and thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of Talking Cloud. Man, I'm so excited. This is going to be a great one. Now, you know, this is where we talk about cloud, all things cloud, anything cloud. And man, oh man, oh man, it's such an enormous word today and getting bigger and bigger. Now, I've said it before and I'm going to remind you, I am no expert, but I've been around for a while and managed to find some good ones. And boy, today I'd say I'm uh, batting clean up and uh, hit a home run. We've got an outstanding guest on the program. I mean, just listen to the guy's background, okay? I mean, from assistant United States attorney way back, and it's an interesting story, I'm sure, how he got into then eBay PayPal, a board member for National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which, you know, is awesome. Trust Advisory Board member for Airbnb, uh, was the chief security officer uh, for more than five years at a small little social networking company, you've probably heard of, Facebook. Uh, commissioner for United States Presidential Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. He was the chief security officer at Uber. I mean, wow. And now is and has been for a little over three years the chief security officer at Cloudflare. I'm thrilled, super excited to have Joe Sullivan on the program. Joe, welcome. Thank you, man, for being here. Uh, thank you, Grant, for the invitation. It's fun to be here. Uh, happy to join you and talk cloud. Yeah. Well, it is a big word today, isn't it? I mean, holy moly. I was asking a guy the other day, I said, you know, name me something, really, what some aspect of computing that doesn't involve cloud. It, I mean, everything's cloud or cloud related, it seems. So before we jump in and get off talking about all kinds of stuff, Cloud, why don't you take a second? I mean, I just quickly brushed over it, but maybe you can, as I say, the Z-axis, provide a little bit of that on you and, and uh, what you've been up to these last few years at Cloudflare. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've been thinking a lot about security from a lot of different perspectives for a long time now. And yeah, I joined Cloudflare um, three years ago last week, um, celebrated my three-year anniversary at Cloudflare. And um, I joined the company in, in 2018 because I saw uh, the transformation that was happening. I mean, I didn't see it as quickly as our founders. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, they named the company Cloudflare 11 years ago. Wow. And uh, so, you know, and they started offering a cloud-based security solution <laughs> and, and helping performance on the internet. And that, um, you know, that's carried the companies forward to today. Oh. Uh, and it's been, you know, it's been an amazing ride for me. You know, I, 
I, I was privileged enough to be at early, early at eBay and see that company grow up I, and then Facebook and see that company grow up and then Uber and see that company grow up. And now, and now I have that front row seat at, at Cloudflare trying to help that company grow up. And the company has grown so much over mm. the last three years. Uh, you know, we went public in the fall of 2019. Uh, that was a great experience. And then, uh, you know, the, the, probably the silver lining of the pandemic was that the internet stood up and kept everybody connected. Um, right. You know, we, we, we almost took for granted that we had a level of connectivity as we all got stuck in our homes, you know, across the planet, mm -hmm. we all were able to stay connected and work. And, um, like my CEO likes to say is, you know, the internet was this, you know, the hidden hero of the pandemic and that it kept a lot of us able to function and earn, a living and, and everything like that. And certainly the fact that a lot of our technology was in the cloud rather than in our own private, you know, cabinets at our own offices made that a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it is, I think it's fascinating how you're spot on without the internet, this would have been a far more uh, severe and impactful pandemic. I would dare say, right? I mean, if you just think of the uh, consequence of this exact same occurrence happening, but happening in uh, 1971, yeah. uh, it would Honestly, even 2001. <laughs> yeah, that's probably... 2011. Yeah, yeah. Certainly from a, from a infra uh, perspective, that's true. But I mean, we could have tried to squeak it out, uh, although it would have been a heck of a struggle. Um, but yeah, I, that's... I, I think about that in the internet. In fact, now... Uh, we never, I, I don't think we really, well, I don't think, I know we never built it with the idea of it being the backbone of my private corporation or publicly traded company, right? It was always kind of the other way. We trust everybody and everything that's going to be using this resource. Absolutely. You know, we, all, we all like to look back at that history and marvel at how it, it evolved from you know, a, a communication platform, a way to connect people who are all trusted uh, inside a group to, you know, everyone in the world being able to interact with each other, you know, for better or worse and, and all the things that come with it. You know, you, you walk through my background and, you know, what I've seen in the world of security is, you know, there's the technical side that's getting a lot of the news right now, but there's also been the, the social impact side, uh, you know, of harm that's happened with you know, the advent of the internet and, the whole world has moved online, all the good, all the bad in every context yes. and, um, uh, and for better or worse. But I think we agree, generally speaking, that the overall good benefit from it is far out, out, out you know, outpaced the, the harm. And we're getting better at dealing with the harm yep. as we yep. go. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, Joe, I was <clears throat> I spoke uh on a webinar uh, this morning, actually, for the D.C. area, although anymore it's you're you're speaking on a webinar for whoever joins from wherever they are on the planet. Uh, we had quite a number. But one of the questions after the discussion and it was talking about resiliency in the cloud and how to build towards it and, and strive for it. And, and there was a question related to 
you know, this zero trust and how it took, I think uh, he cited Google and beyond trust taking, you know, several years to implement and is it worth it? And, you know, I, I, my reply, and I'd be curious to hear what you think, was, you know, short of taking what I refer to as the echo sketch uh, uh, approach, which you have to be old enough to remember that toy from the old days that you'd turn over and shake and anything you had scribbled on the screen had disappeared completely. You know, that's about the only way we could really get to rebuilding a complete zero trust environment, right? I mean, anything else is going to have to be some transition from one to the next, isn't it? Yeah, zero trust is an interesting concept. I think it's here to stay. Um, You know, we saw just a couple of weeks ago, the um, Biden White House put out an executive order on cybersecurity. And to me, that executive order was really interesting because it had two things in it that you don't typically see. Uh, And they were in in the same category, which was the executive order was prescribing specific security kinds of solutions. And so one was about, you know, multi-factor authentication, which we can put aside for now. But the second was the the executive order specifically used the phrase zero trust Hmm. and said, you know, I want, you know, the, the, you know, the president of the United States wants the federal government of the United States to move towards zero trust. Um, and that is a recognition of what I think Google and, uh, was talking about when when they launched Beyond Core a decade or so ago, maybe more than a decade ago now, um, which was the recognition that when you, you you know we all have these laptops that connect to a Wi-Fi network that connects us to applications that are running inside uh, servers, and the recognition was that you could not as an organization fully manage and create a shell around the laptop to the Wi-Fi, to the network, to the application and the server, mm-hmm. and, and just make sure that nobody except for our inside group can touch all those things. Um, the reality is that we use those laptops to connect um, to our personal emails where, and our social media accounts, and so malware can end, quickly, quickly end up on our laptop. Um, and then even if it doesn't, when our laptop connects to the internet, it's going through a Wi-Fi network that we might not trust. Uh, and so traffic can be tampered with or interfered with or intercepted. And then when it gets to the application that's sitting in a server, uh, that application is just, is internet facing as well now. And so if it's internet facing, that means that that whole server is internet facing. And that means that that whole machine is, is susceptible to compromise as well. And then, you know, that up, you know, the person is connection to that application is also connecting to a bunch of other different applications, you know, now like hundreds. And as a result, you have to kind of think about it. You have to have that mental model that I'm not going to hundred percent secure that laptop. I'm not going to hundred percent secure that application. I'm not hundred percent going to secure the network traffic. So I have to com- kind of manage my risk by compartmentalizing and not trusting any one of them when it interacts with the other, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yep, completely. In fact, I think um, it was, uh, I, 
the co-founder of Dome 9, he did a presentation. Uh, this was a year or two ago, and it was, it was titled, The Perimeter is Dead, Long Live the Perimeter, with the notion that the, the concept of the moat around our castle, firewall kind of, we're gonna, anything on the inside is, is okay, is certainly dead. But what he suggested is that we're moving to where virtually every entity, as small as we can make it, will have a perimeter, which uh, is every object, every function, every asset. Uh, and that seems to align with getting to zero trust, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, you know, Gartner um, came out with a new acronym, um, I think in 2019, SASE. And the idea was building on uh, zero trust and taking it to the network level. Right. At least that's the way I interpreted it. Yep. And so the you so what I, secure what, access service edge. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I think that that term is becoming slowly a buzzword. It's being adopted. Yeah. But when you ask when you ask a bunch, you get 20 CISOs, you know, security leaders in a room and say, How, where are you on your sassy journey? You'll get mm. a bunch of different answers. Yeah. Um, because to step back, like, you know, when we when I thought about the original interpretation of Beyond Core, and how to implement it in my companies, you know, like you look at the old moat world that you talked about, where you know the castle with the moat yep. and this, the network perimeter. When I saw the network perimeter evaporate, um, I I focused on two things: uh, identity and access management, and uh, and and securing the applications mm -hmm. because. If, if you assume that everything's facing the internet and that anybody can get at it, you know, our identity really matters. If you can steal the identity of an engineer at a company, then you can log into that company and get all the access that the engineer had, which is going to be broad. Uh, if you can steal the CEO's identity, you can log into the company and, and have access to the CEO's access, which is going to be broad. Mm -hmm. And so I doubled down on identity and access management as a top priority in my security organizations. But I also like focused on application security because it's like, oh, wait, if your application's facing the Internet, um, then uh, anybody can poke holes in your code. Um, with the evolution and, – and so that was kind of like what I was thinking about eight or nine years ago at, mm. uh, when I was at Facebook um, mm. in the early days there of building out that security organization. We were looking at all of our code facing the internet and all of our employees' accounts that were like you could log in from the internet. Right. The, um, the third thing that went away was the network, like the idea of like we have a hard network edge where we can do firewalls and all that. I actually, I think what, what SASE signals is that the network concept is coming back into security, mm. even in a perimeterless world. Mm -hmm. You can create these tunnels the way a VPN used to tunnel you into the network. So, but the tunnels can be much more complicated than the old VPN. And so you can actually bring network concepts back into security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I was going to say is, you know, on the notion of, of, uh, accessing your data and accessing uh, I you know based on identity I mean it goes beyond the 
person, right? I mean, now we're, we're talking about everything is going to have an identity, a function, uh, info as code, containers, all of these things have to have some sort of identity or seemingly that's the trend also, right, in order to get to that zero trust. So you don't have an application that's got some wild card in the code that shouldn't be there that means anything can be accessed when really it should be much more specific, right? Exactly. There's a, ter- a phrase that we've used on the teams that I've been part of called service to service authentication, which probably, you know, didn't exist a long time ago, because if you, if your services were all running inside like a secure network, you were not so worried about them. Mm-hmm. But, um, now that, you know, now that we've learned things like, I don't know, in the Snowden documents, this suggestion that the NSA compromised backhaul data traffic between Google data centers, uh, you know, which was not encrypted because, you know, in the old days, Google thought of like, oh, it's just traffic going between our data centers. That's not going across the public Internet. That's not that's that doesn't need to be encrypted in the same in the same way that like efficiencies. Right. I mean, they could they could shovel that stuff a whole lot faster if they didn't have to bother with the overhead of encrypting. Right. And so then, they, you know, we learned from that, that yeah. we all need to encrypt our backhaul traffic um, because it's exposed because it's exp- exposed to the Internet. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, you talk about uh, identity and access management. So I'm, I'm looking at and you've likely seen this. Um, it's, a, a, I think, a report um, on the uh, C. You know, the cloud infrastructure entitlement management vendor landscape and adjacencies. This is from a Gartner report. But I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking to myself, because I too, like you, I was in uh, IoT security for about two plus years. And then I went over to Dome 9. And this was in uh, almost the same as you. My anniversary was uh, on the 1st of July. for Dome 9 2018, three months later, checkpoint bottom. And this was, frankly, I don't honestly remember uh, CSPM even being an active acronym at that time. And arguably, you know, Dome 9 was the granddaddy of that space. They were doing it before it was called that. But now I'm looking at this chart, man, and it's got CIEM, Entitlement Management, CWPP, which is Workload Mm -hmm. Protection, CSPM, which is Posture Management, CASB, which uh, Access Security Broker, and then SSPM, which is SAS, Security Posture Management. And that's... Uh, The way they've diagrammed this, they've divided kind of uh, top left corner, lower right corner. So a triangle top right is the cloud security. Bottom left, it's all identity access management and uh, privileged access management and identity uh, governance uh, and uh, administration. And it just blows me away how... This has just expanded so much and has so many little nuances in terms of the functionality. And not one, I, I'm still wondering how do you control if you've got an S3 bucket that's getting used by 500 different things? 
apps, people, resources, assets? How do you know if something changes and who who's who's using it now and for what reason? All right, that's that's <laughs> that's the ultimate question, right? Um, we 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 talk about the migration to the cloud, and people talk about it in terms of compute and storage typically right right Right. but but that was the easy part (laughs) and and the hard part was what's been happening next and that's where like companies like mine cloudflare come in because we're we're providing a bunch of those other layers of the cloud infrastructure for companies and you know those they they didn't move the when they moved the um storage and compute to the cloud first because of you know the perceived efficiency convenience uh, and sure. convenience and and being able to you know you know i guess back and you looked at the old like on-premise team at your company like 80 percent of the staff was probably dedicated to the storage and compute side of things and, yeah. and 80 and, and and more than 80 percent of your cost and so moving that to the cloud like phase one of moving to the cloud was the easy part because yep. Like economically, it made a lot of sense for companies and it was more efficient for them. Early the days of is, Dropbox, right? Remember when right, Dropbox right. was like, what? I could have this storage up in the cloud and it's free? I just have to give right. them my email address? Right. It, like that That individual experience was the, it was the same thing that our IT departments felt. The magic of moving to the cloud was like, whoa, someone else gets to deal with the patching, you know, you yeah. know doing the Linux, the Linux update. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so... The hard part was, was that, you know, those weren't the only boxes that were in the shed. There were also, you know, the <laughs> load balancers, the, um, the network intrusion systems, the identity and access management stuff, all of the infrastructure as a service stuff that we're starting to talk about a lot more now that, mm-hmm. you know, that my company provides that some of the other companies provide. Um, and they, those didn't go to the cloud as quickly, but they're all, they got to get there now because you can't leave the security behind when you bring the storage and compute to the cloud yep. and you have to, and, and the, like to your point at the, I think your last question is the complexity of it all. Like when it was inside your own network, it, you know, it was just some cables yeah. and, um, you know, you didn't have to like put a piece of security on every cable. Now you have to basically think of every connection as a risk. Yes. Well, and it, it, it seems like it's even exacerbated further when you start to think about the trend towards um, using technologies that enable fluidity across clouds, right? Containers. And when you start to... Um, that, you know, one day I'm using Mongo and the next day I decide this other database is better to use. And those kinds of fluctuations down uh, that result in a different entity, you know, putting in or taking out data. I mean, how is that getting watched? Yeah, it's... um... It's a real challenge. As I, you know, I talk in kind of a linear fashion, Joe... That's the next knot in the rope. We're untying this whole posture management and identity. Uh, but the next knot is, okay, but what's happening with my data? Well, you know, I think um, 
there's probably a decent percentage of the security breaches that have happened in the cloud are the data that people forgot was in the cloud. Mm. What I mean is that it's like old backups, it's old, um, it's the old format, it's stuff that like the team moved on to the new hot thing yep. for, and they forgot that the old stuff was still internet facing right. and if it's internet facing. It has to be maintained forever. Uh, just, and in fact, it becomes harder to maintain the longer it's sitting there. Right. Or maybe they thought they, uh, removed it all, cleaned it all up, but sometimes things get missed, overlooked, you know, people get distracted, right? You're right in the middle of right. something. I mean, that happened to me earlier today and I realized, shoot, I didn't finish that. I, there's a long list of security products out there that profess to do one thing, find your cloud assets for you. Right. <laughs> you know, un, you know, un, unpack your shadow IT, tell the security and IT team where all of their internet facing things actually are. Right. Because if you don't know it exists, you can't secure it. There's no and, question. Visibility is the starting point, right? Right. But um, yeah, the CIS top 20, which is kind of like one of the nice security frameworks out there. I think, you know, number one is, do you know all your assets? Yeah. Um, you know, I think most executives would be hard pressed to sign on a dotted line saying, I know where all my executive, I know where all my assets are. Yeah. And, and, you know, remember back, uh, you know, talking about going back and, and looking, there's some remarkable similarities, but some also exacerbated challenges. And I'm talking specifically about when we move, when we first moved to virtualization, right? When it first kind of started happening and we were all like so thrilled to be able to take advantage of this compute that was far outstripping uh, the pace at which we could utilize it, right? So, I mean, it was mm -hmm. awesome. Uh, but then vMotion and, hey, enter VM communications, right? So we needed new tools and sprawl was a bit of a problem. But boy, today, especially if you're talking public cloud, sprawl can be not only a big problem, but can be really costly. If you leave one of those little uh, wheels spinning somewhere and you get a bill, but your bill's so big, you're not really paying attention, you know? Yep. Yeah. I'm, uh, I've had a number of situations where we've gotten a big bill <laughs> on my teams and we're like, what, what's this big bill for? And we realized we set up a logging pipeline um, and for whatever reason, it doubled the amount of time that it was, you know, the amount of volume it was logging, right. you know, because traffic got busier down downstream. And then all of a sudden, you know, we've been adding a lot more to our cloud storage and we got to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I, um, I talked to a CEO of a security company last year uh, and they, they, they make a network appliance that kind of uh, a network contrusion system and he said their number one feature request that they get isn't like add better analysis or add better ways of logging. It's add better ways to trim out all the logs I don't need mm. because my customers care more about my cloud storage cost uh, that I'm causing them than they do about the other features of my product. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's. It's not the same, but it feels similar, I guess. I just happened to pay a little bit more attention to my 
cell bill that I got because I couldn't understand why it was creeping up as high as it was. And sure enough, I find that I've you know, been paying 16 bucks for some support and, and, and protection on my phone since I bought my 12 Pro. Never asked mm-hmm. for it, never wanted it. So it's obviously a little bit different, a little slamming going on. Um, mm-hmm. But it adds up over time. But if you're not really paying attention, I could certainly appreciate an organization like you with the resources you're using. It can be difficult if you don't have good hygiene in public cloud, right? Yep. Sounds like the conversation I had with my daughter uh, because of the Google Fi account. She's running up data cost on on her European trip right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so you're feeling it, huh? It's the exact same thing. The more data you use, the more you pay. Yeah. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So as I was reading some recent stats about the overwhelming percentage of people that are using multi-cloud, you know, that's kind of foregone. I think any of these vendor presentations that start off and talk about that kind of journey of, hey, we're going from cloud to multi-cloud. It's so Captain Obvious. You know, we were talking a little bit about the data, what I think is kind of that next knot. Any um, any words of wisdom or insight that maybe you can provide for our listeners on the things you'd, you know, really recommend people do first before they move too fast in the cloud or maybe pay special attention to? Got any recommendations? Yeah, there's one thing I learned about a long time ago, egress fees. <laughs> um, when you put data, you know, when you put data, when you put a bunch of stuff in that Dropbox account that you talked about, um, you didn't get charged to take it back out. Um, but like the incentives aren't always aligned in that regard. And so if you want to ultimate, like when we go into the cloud, you have a tendency to you know, go in with one provider first and then assume that you're going to be able to to add more over time and so you need to think you need to think through not just getting set up with that first cloud provider but how is it going to work with the other ones down the road and can you seamlessly move data back and forth we my company we've been part of something called a bandwidth alliance where um, a set of cloud providers have basically agreed that you can move data between them without incurring massive fees. Mm. Um, so um, I always remember one of um, one of the fun projects I got to work on in my time at Facebook is we acquired Instagram and Instagram was running entirely on a public cloud. Um, and we migrated Instagram uh, onto the Facebook infrastructure. Um, a lot of people don't really appreciate this about Facebook, but one of the things that I always consider the the greatest asset at Facebook was the infrastructure that the infrastructure team uh, led by Jay Parikh had built there back in the day. And it was just like having, it was like running a global CDN like Cloudflare Mm. just for Facebook and running, you know, giant data centers that could do all the compute and the storage um, just for Facebook, but then when the company acquired Instagram and WhatsApp, you know everybody talks about the competitive advantages that, and things like that, and you know the antitrust stuff that's going on. But to me, the fascinating stuff was the technical side of it. Mm. Um, I think that Instagram was able to move on to the Facebook platform 
and execute really well on the product side because they no longer had to worry about infrastructure. It was like, but they had started in a public cloud and they moved over to the Facebook infrastructure and we had to do that migration. It was crazy, mm. uh, challenging and to, to extract all that data from a public cloud. Similarly with WhatsApp, like, it, you know, I always remember that, you know, the WhatsApp logo has a phone on it, but you couldn't actually call someone with WhatsApp until it moved on to the Facebook infrastructure. Oh, really? Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a um, there's a value in having that like strong e infrastructure that you can leverage, you know, if you're a smaller business, and that's what the public cloud stands for. But you still have to think about your cost of mo moving. Mm. And so the second the second question I always have when is like, have you thought about egress? And then have you thought realistically about um, how how it will actually work in multi-cloud when you're going to do things like advanced data analytics like can you do it can you do data analytics against data that's stored in two different clouds at the same time right how are you going to do all that stuff it gets pretty complicated pretty fast pretty important to aggregate that stuff right i mean it, but the problem and this tell me if i'm wrong on this but two cloud vendors pick them uh, it's they don't always take the same identical path to summit the mountain and so consequently it's sometimes difficult to line them up exactly the same right and you're and you're going to have to deal with the the issue that your your engineers on your team have biases based on their prior experience someone mm -hmm. who's worked on one on one public cloud environment is really comfortable there right you know i hate to say it but none of them have the best documentation uh, because it's all evolving and they're launching new layers of their products all the time. And so, you know, engineers who've worked on, you know, migrating to to GCP are, are, and spent a bunch of time working there are not necessarily going to be super comfortable jumping in and working on Azure cloud stuff. Right. Because it's slightly different, like you said. Yeah. Um, well, I think it, over time... It, yeah. Sorry, it, it doesn't. The other thing about it, you know, even from a security and controls perspective, and, and APIs available, it they don't line up one to one, A to A, all the way through Z, and do exactly the same because they're different. I mean, I don't know. Last time I checked, I don't think Amazon uh, AWS has Active Directory or cares nearly as much about it as. Microsoft, right? So right. it just really, and the same thing is true about trying to design and enforce any controls. Of, and if you're bringing them from on-premise and all of the things you did, I mean, you can't just map it one-to-one. -one. This is why I've heard over and over that one of the big mistakes is to go into the cloud saying, well, when we had it on-prem, we did it like this. So we'll do it the same way. Is that fair to say that's a wrong approach? I, I think that is, I think you're spot on. Um, I, what I've seen over and over is people who have assumptions about the way things worked before going to be able to work that way now are the ones that have the biggest headaches mm. down the road. Yeah. Um, it, it truly is a, a fundamental, you know, because there was a, um, there was a casualness that came from having that network perimeter yeah. around what you did inside it that, you know, a whole generation of technologists have had to 
uh, adapt to a different world now. And um, you see it over and over again. Joe, Um, to me, am I getting it wrong? I mean, to me, it seems so counterintuitive, though, uh, because in just about everything in life, how do we approach it? Well, we look and we think of how we've done it and we leverage that experience. So I, I can see how easily it happens and how much of a challenge it is to pull the reins and force yourself not to go in and think an ELB is exactly like an F5 load balancer. Right. Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting because you know we talked about the move to the cloud and I think it was the teams that saw the value in storage and compute and went there quickly. Um, They were happy, but the teams that were trailing have been unhappy. And so, for example, my profession, security, uh, a lot of CISOs did not want their security products running in the cloud because they didn't trust the cloud. And so they still held on tight. They wrapped (laughs) their arms around their on-prem security hardware and they were not going to transition to the cloud. And it feels like, um, I, 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 I remember, I think it was the RSA conference, um, just two years ago, the one before, um, uh, COVID-19 when, I think it was going into 2019, mm-hmm. uh, spring 2019, CISOs were just starting to acknowledge, yeah, I need to buy security products that are in the cloud rather than do on-prem. Right. Um, but like if you had stopped and grabbed someone from Splunk at that point, they would have told you, yeah, like a massively greater percentage of our customers run Splunk on-prem versus run Splunk cloud. Now, I don't know how much that's evolved, but I can say, you know, as a cloud security company, Lots of people are coming to us now and comfortable running security products that operate outside of their network perimeter because they understand you kind of got to have a security product that sits in the same environment that everything else sits and is built to operate in that new world like we are. Well, I I would suggest that, A, we, corporate America, the enterprises of the world, have accepted the cloud and it's generally you got to explain to me why we can't do it in the cloud you know that's i think more often the case um and i think also we all we were all thrown in the middle of the 12 foot end of the pool with this whole uh, pandemic thing and you know the only way to get out of that one was the cloud And so I think there was a bit of forced adoption. And then everybody went, oh, wait, you know, all I got to do is keep some air in my lungs and keep my chin up. And, you know, this isn't so bad, Uh, you know, and I I, I think that now we're realizing that, in fact, maybe this is this. There's some real benefits to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was um, kind of forced on us that. but it's been, I think, it's been really liberating in many, many ways for a lot of people. Um, wh- horrible occurrence, but liberating in terms of how we're all accepting the use of cloud and technology. Right. It's freeing a lot of companies up to have employees who are the best employee for the company, not the best employee who lives within 30 miles of the company. 
Boy, and um, and gosh, Joe. I mean, I just think to my, I, I, you know, I I flew two hundred seventy thousand miles the last year, twenty nineteen, um, uh, that I flew. Um, but then, I flew one time, and you know, one time for business since uh, twenty twenty started, and, and just from a cost basis. Now, it's not the same. But I know that, you know, I've often suggested we're not going to have 100% memory, uh, the context of, you know, a big fat rubber band that you stretch and let go of and has 100% memory. It, uh, it's just not sound fiduciary decision, if you ask me. You know, you've got to really scrutinize uh, that T&E spend a little bit more, right? Yeah, I think it's... It's an interesting question because there's two sides of that T&E spend, right? There's the, uh, like when I think about the conferences in my industry, there's two sides. There are the practitioners who go to the conferences to learn and um, develop and network. And then there are the sales and marketing people who go to those conferences to sell. Right. It seems to, it, when I talk to the two different cohorts, I get different answers. Uh, when I talk to the practitioners they're kind of like i want some socialization but mega conferences don't sound you know they sounds like a big germ pit i don't want to go there right um and you know, but you know i'll go to some smaller things where i can be with some peers where i can learn and stuff like that um the sales and marketing people are like you know where do i you know where where do let I find those people? <laughs> let me add them, <laughs> yeah. and and they're and they're ready to go back to the two hundred and seventy thousand miles a year if that's what it takes. Right. But right. I, I think that the world is good. Yeah, I think you're you're onto something. I don't think we're going to see everything rebound to exactly the way it was before because I think a lot of us are going to choose to do. Um, Honestly, I think we're going to be doing more, more traveling for our day jobs because we're going to be further away from our office. <laughs> so we're more likely to be coming together with our own team yeah. on a quarterly basis than we are going to want to do that travel away from our team. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the thing, too, that at least I'm seeing in my area, I'm in the Pacific Northwest and I live, albeit in an area that's, you know, an hour's drive north of Portland, Oregon. I live on the Washington side, two, three hours south of Seattle. So it's not like I'm right in the thick of it. But boy, it's just going like popcorn because all of a sudden now people that are living in those major areas are saying, hey, I can go live anywhere I want now and mm -hmm. uh, just have to get to the office once every quarter. Like you say, that's really been a game changer for a lot of people. Uh, is, that, is that the policy you guys have? How are you approaching this whole uh, post-pandemic, got to come into the office or not? Or what's your policy been? Yeah, we're, um, we're taking a employee-first approach. You know, we, we, learned, we learned that we um, can function very well as a company without being together over the last year. And to top that, 50% of the company we've hired since the start of the pandemic. <laughs> wow. So, so half the people at the company have never met someone else face to face wow. and they're doing a great job. You know, I've onboarded a bunch of people on my team. Uh, we know each other. Well, we talk, we, you know, we found ways to communicate, connect, 
build strategies, execute, get things done. Um, we all want to get together with each other. Like nobody on my team's clamoring to go to a conference. They're clamoring to get together with their teammates. Right. And so when we do get into TNE, it is going to be, you know, team building quarterly get together, that whole, yeah. 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 Strategy for the next year. Strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that given how things have been, those would be even more uh, effective and rich when the people do come together, you know, uh, after seeing everybody virtually for for uh, three months to actually connect together. Uh, you're going to have a different kind of uh, camaraderie, I would think. Yep. I do think that there are going to be smaller events. Like I did go to an in-person security executive event a couple of weeks ago, and it was only for a dozen security executives or so, mm. and half of them flew in for it. I was <laughs> surprised. But it, I think they were desperate to talk to other people <laughs> uh, in person and have a nice meal together and break bread and yeah. and talk about you know our shared passions. And... Um, but I don't think they would have done that for a you know a, a ten thousand person conference. Yeah, and you know I don't know, Joe. I'm, my sense is, you know, and I I've had the wonderful benefit pleasure to talk to a lot of CISOs, a lot of executives, and you know my sense is the greatest benefit you get isn't getting bombarded by every booth that has a babe or not and is handing out the literature and has a juggler or somebody on stilts or any other myriad of attractions. But the benefit is when you can go and have a conversation with a peer, when you can go and meet with a group of your peers and have a discussion about SASE and what are the trends you're seeing and, and maybe even get into, have you had an experience with this or that approach? I, I've always heard that's what is most enriching for guys like you, uh, not going and walking up and down the aisles and having people shaking literature at you. Yeah, you know, it's. It, I think you're exactly right. Uh, I've been, I've, I've attended or led, do, literally dozens of those smaller group sessions over um, video conferencing over the last year. Mm. I did one this morning with a group of CISOs in the Atlanta area, um, where we, you know, we had a topic and we spent an hour going deep on it, sharing best practices with each other, and um, uh, I'll be at an in-person. <laughs> CISO dinner tonight, where we'll be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I seek out the I, I seek out those kinds of share information sharing, best practice sharing environments much more than I have any interest in going to the big conferences. Yeah, I can uh, totally understand and appreciate it, and makes a lot of sense. Um, and the fact that the sales and marketing are ready to go jump into the uh, pool with. Uh, 50,000 of their closest friends doesn't surprise me either. Yeah. Uh, Joe, this, thank you, man. Uh, this has really been terrific. I want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to take up too much of it, but I've really enjoyed talking with you and really appreciate uh, your words of wisdom and, and just spending so much time with us today. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on the program. We'll do it again, I hope. And, and uh, uh, again, thanks so much, Joe. All right. Looking forward to it. Take care.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we got another one down. That was an awesome one. I really, really enjoyed that. Keen insights, good recommendations, definitely talking cloud. And I want to thank you all very much for listening. I hope you like what you're hearing. Uh, tell your friends, uh, share, subscribe, and we'll look forward to having you back on the next episode of Talking Cloud.